but maybe this is a good point of having gone through the personal search shift gears to let you showcase your work so we can do the episode where we can be like this is me as as we will be eventually be dr fitzpatrick archaeologist extraordinaire the anti indiana jones and maybe that's a good place, place to start off this part of the conversation we like to talk a little bit about that particular piece you wrote or the conversation you had because he is sadly the ambassador for your, your discipline oh. Yeah, I mean, I think I should originally tiled it. I'm gonna kick Indiana Jones's ass because <laughs> I mean, I could. Probably, he'd probably shoot me, but um, I, I, I might be able to. I don't know. Um, but it's, there, there's an irony to it, obviously, because if you ask me uh, how I got into archaeology, the truthful answer is when I was a kid, I did see Indiana Jones. I was really obsessed with the idea of like you know that adventurous archaeology thing um i when i was old enough to like really understand indiana jones as a concept and archaeology as a concept i immediately went to my backyard in new york and dug a two-foot hole which i got yelled at for yeah i went to my best friend's house down the street and then dug a two-foot hole in her backyard which her parents weren't very thrilled about but you know, like I was just real, I was really into it. Um, and then as I got older, I was really into the to history, but I was also a very hands-on person. I also still kind of like science and like biology. So it all kind of ended up being like a really good field for me. But uh, yeah, but it also, as I got a bit more politically educated and, and a bit more knowledgeable, I realized how um, unfortunate it is that uh, India Jones is basically the only real like archaeological representation because he he's barely an archaeologist i mean he teaches a little bit uh or not really i feel like in the movies he's always like leaving the college to not be teaching for a while um he has that one scene where he gives that lecture and that student is setting up what potentially be a sexually like a real case for sexual harassment with the infamous writing on the eyes but anyway I will, I, although, I mean, Harrison Ford in the hand Jones is a real snack, let's be real. Um, <laughs> no offense to my other archaeology colleagues, but I have never met anyone who was like a real Harrison Ford type in the field, so that's already a fantasy. I've okay, tried, okay. I've looked. It's very unfortunate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, um, yeah, like he really is, and I mean, it's... It, you can't necessarily put all the blame on Indiana Jones because it's it, it is its own trope that like you know the romanticized explorer trope that uh, archaeology so neatly fits under because it has a history of being you know inherently part of the colonial process. Um, and then so like learning that kind of stuff as I got a bit older, I was like, oh yeah, this is a actually a terrible, <laughs> really bad role model to have, and it's really sad to know that that kind of concept the indiana jones uh personification of archaeology is still like upheld as like a good thing among a lot of uh archaeologists in the field um but luckily there's people who are pushing against it um yeah <laughs> so how did you go from your original original starry-eyed indiana jones inspiration to enter the field to the the actual work that you're doing which then has a very has a decolonial bent trying to undo the the work of indiana joneses of the field i think that kind of the whole decolonization stuff really didn't start in my brain until i left new york 
um, and like really started doing some like really deep self-reflective work in kind of my past because I grew up um, like I said I'm I'm mixed so uh, my dad's white um, and is like, was born in America my mom is uh, from Hong Kong um, and like her side of the family are very brown uh, so I it, I kind of would get that racialization it's specifically where I grew up because it was like a mostly white town. I didn't see another Asian person that I wasn't related to until high school, I think. Wow. Um, otherwise I was like the token minority friend for most of like all, like all my white friends who uh, have fortunately know better now. And some of them have actually reached out to me to be like, Hey, I was a terrible racist uh, friend when we were growing <laughs> up, uh, which has been really nice. Uh, and, and maybe in part of the fact that I, I'm way more outspoken about uh, the kind of stuff that I clearly grew up with and then just internalized because, you know, I wanted to buy into that whiteness um, and not be the, the freak uh, who, you know, eats weird lunch and dinners sometimes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so like moving out of America and moving to the UK where I'm even more isolated in a lot of aspects um and kind of doing that like internal work of being like oh actually i there was a lot of stuff that i was internalizing as a kid i think made me really start to examine everything in terms of why was i really into archaeology and the things i like about archaeology uh and things like that and realize how i mean saying archaeology is problematic is like very understated i think <laughs> it's way more than problematic but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's kind of that work that ended up becoming what I, I'm really more interested in now, which is kind of approaching a, a more decolonial approach to archaeology and uh, something I'm even more interested in more recently and something I'm like writing about is uh, the idea of accountability in archaeology and what it means to actually not just quote unquote decolonize by adding a couple more uh, black and brown and indigenous archaeologists to the mix. But like how we actually kind of, you know, actually perform like justice. How do we actually make things right with the communities that we've harmed in the past centuries, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe we should take a couple steps back before we get into your specific project, which is <laughs> that we've been talking a lot about it being like an imperialist and colonial enterprise. When we talk about that for archaeology, what what exactly does that mean? What is the what is the history? I mean, some of the earliest, uh, you know, earliest uh, expeditions were, were done in part of uh, imperial expeditions in general. I mean, like probably one of the, the more famous cases of it is when Napoleon's uh, army was going through Egypt um, and at the same time of being a, you know, a imperial uh, military presence, they were also doing ex uh, excavations and looking mm. into uh, know ancient Egypt and some of like the earliest uh, Egyptology texts we have are from those expeditions and you really ultimately you can't talk about archaeology and the history of archaeology without also talking about the fact that it was just another hand of colonialism that wherever colonial forces were um, you know were colonizing they would often end up having archaeologists there to look into the history and do things like that and obviously take that stuff put it back in the uh the country 
the original country and uh, as of now not to go back, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess I think of that iconic scene in Indiana Jones where with the ball, right? Uh, the coming down, he's like, this belongs in a museum, right? That's sort of the justification. It's a very imperial type of like, you know, this is for the betterment of everyone. This kind of attitude that is also just, you know, very white savior in inherently, you know. Um, and I remember when I was in uh, my undergrad, very being very into that kind of conceit of like, this belongs in a museum in terms of, you know, we should make all these collections public and accessible to people. I was very into that idea and then getting a little bit older and realizing, oh wait, but when we say this belongs in a museum, whose museum are we talking about? When Indy says that, he's always talking about, mm -hmm. you know, a museum in United States or a museum in Britain. He's not saying this belongs in a museum in this cultural region that I'm currently in. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of just learning that along the way. It's been really eye-opening for sure. Mm -hmm. I guess for me, the most recent example of, of how clear the ties are between imperialism and archaeology was, I guess for me, like, because I'm of the generation where our political consciousness was really, really galvanized by 9-11. And remembering that when American forces went into Iraq, it was all about them raiding the museums that existed there and raiding lots of sites and yeah. like either destroying them or just taking all the, taking all the best stuff basically back to the States. Yeah. I mean, I was really, um, I, I, I almost hit into um, what, what it's quote unquote called near Eastern archeology. span and then had a lot of uh, self-reflection on the idea of me being an American going into that field and then decided instead I'm just going to do an opposite uh, colonization and go to the UK. Um, so it's fine. So having spoken so much about, well, human-based archaeology, for lack of a better term, but you end up turning to zoo archaeology, why is zoo archaeology, which is about animals, and tell us a bit about your work? Um, I went to zoo archaeology because human archaeology was too hard, and I was really bad at it. <laughs> and zoo archaeology is great. No, I'm not even joking. <laughs> really? You know, no, seriously, zoo archaeology is great because you get a little benefit of the doubt because it's, there's more animals to know. Uh, but honestly, I, that is honestly part of the reason why. But also, I am very fascinated by the fact that animals are so, you know, they're so a part of our culture. And yet archaeology is inherently uh, anthropocentric. You know, everything is done through the lens of humans. Even when you're talking about archaeology, you're always talking about it in the idea of how did humans use these animals? How did they raise these animals? You know, what did humans do with these animals? Like, that's kind of basically it. And one thing I've been trying to do uh, since I started my PhD was kind of move away from that and examine animals uh, and the archaeology of animals on its own merits, which again is difficult because I am also a, a human being. So there's that perspective put on top of it. But conceptually, I really like the idea of developing something like that and i mean in my actual phd work it's not something i ended up kind of doing because i was also looking at the human bones but you know in spite of that it's something i'm really interested in which animals um i mean when it comes to zoo archaeology it's all animals that seems so yeah, daunting right? 
Like, how do you how do you narrow it on in which ones are most relevant to a project then? Because like that's that's just massive. Yeah, I mean, when I I did my masters, I so I basically started doing zooarchaeology in my masters, and for that, I specifically look at fish bones, and then realized I hated fish bones, and I don't want to just specifically look at fish bones ever again. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I think that's why I'm a bit more open. I'm like, I'll do anything. And I think that's what most people tend to do. Uh, with zoo archaeology, you get people either specializing specifically in a certain a type of animal. So you have I have some friends of mine who are specifically into fish bones or you know uh, into domesticates or something like that. Um, and then you get uh, people who are more into it based on region or time. So based on my research, I'm more of a person who's into uh, British zoo archaeology. <laughs> in that I could only recognize British animals at this point. If you show me something from like even America, I'll be like, I don't know what that is. And so what was your dissertation about, or is rather, since you're about to defend it? Um, it's basically, it's a look at the animal bones from the site of Cowsie. Uh So in Scotland, uh, uh, on the Moray Firth in the North, east of Scotland, uh, there is a series of caves that are called the Cowsey Caves. And uh, there's one in particular called the Sculptor's Cave that's been uh, a site of a lot of intense uh, examination, specifically because they have a really fantastic um, collection of human remains there uh, that are from the later prehistory, so uh, about the Neolithic to uh, the Iron Age. And um, that's gotten a lot of attention, but the other caves that are nearby have exhibited kind of similar patterns in terms of what's there. Uh, so uh, the project I was part of was, was looking at all those other caves, but specifically I was looking at the animal bones because no one, had, no one had actually looked at them. There were so many animal bones, apparently no one wanted to look at them. Mm. Uh, so I said I would do it. Um, and the fascinating thing about them and kind of the crux in my thesis was, you know, not only why were all these animal bones doing there, because it wasn't just, you know, a, a sheep or something that may have gotten loose from a nearby settlement. There, there were loads of animals in these caves that must have been brought there intentionally because it's so difficult to get into these caves to begin with. So I was looking at all the animals there, kind of figuring out the representation of species in these assemblages and also comparing them to the human bones in order to kind of get an idea of how they're being treated, what exactly that meant in terms of, you know, how are animals being incorporated into these funerary and ritual activities. Um, it was definitely a way more daunting uh, thing looking back on it now. <laughs> There's a lot I had set myself up to uh, be answering. <laughs> But it was, it's honestly, it's, it, it was an amazing experience in terms of kind of really opening my eyes as to, you know, ritual in prehistoric Britain isn't just, you know, uh, we're going to cut out, cut up a, a cow or something. There are way more nuanced aspects to it. Uh, a lot of stuff I ended up talking about in my thesis were concepts of, you know, what what is a wild animal and what's a domesticated animal and how does that even relate to someone in uh, the later prehistoric Britain, uh, specifically when it comes to using them and incorporating them into their activities. 
and, and kind of like the idea of death mm. and the way that it's interspersed with all these other kind of everyday activities because there seems to have been, you know, uh, butchering of animals for consumption being done on the same place that they were also uh, interring uh, their ancestors. So it, it, it ended up being a lot more complicated, I think, than what I originally thought. So that's kind of why my thesis is like 400 pages long. My God, I mean, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Could you get a little bit into, so what were the differences between the wild versus domesticated um, distinction in the animals? And I, I could imagine that there's probably like a lot of like really important claims that people have made then about domestication since it's seen as such an important marker of human development and then colonial development eventually. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we talk about domesticates in archaeology, there's, you know, a very select uh, amount of species that you immediately think of. You think of your cows, your sheep, slash goats, your pigs, uh, horses. Um, and working on this, it really opened my eyes to the idea that, you know, domestication isn't just a, this animal is domesticated or this animal is not is a wild animal. There are gradients and other people have done this work. So this is definitely not like a, a giant realization on my part, but um, it was really interesting to kind of see that actually in person, because even though I did know that there were gradients, that there are technically wild animals that can be managed by humans in a way that doesn't really necessarily make them domesticated. Um, but seeing that like in person in the archaeological record was kind of wild, uh, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> um, the main one being uh, deer. So there were loads of red deer in these caves. And it was just really, we were just trying to figure out why there was so much red deer. There was no way that these red deer were getting into these caves and dying off because you would have to like shimmy to get into these caves. It's kind of a nightmare. Um, They're clearly being, you know, uh, cut up and brought in. And so my whole thing was kind of looking at how the deer was being used and how it seemed like that they were probably being managed by uh, people in the past uh, in this part of Scotland rather than, you know, just being hunted off. It may have been that herds were being managed by humans and again, not necessarily domesticated, but still, uh, you know, associated in a way that they would, of course, be bringing them into these kind of caves that were uh, also a funerary complex. Hmm. It's it, it Yeah, it's it's hard to for me to really focus and talk about a specific part of the thesis because it ended up blowing up so much. I think even my supervisors were kind of surprised what started out as something that was supposed to be, you know, oh, it looks like they were having like feasts uh, in these caves when they were like uh, burying their dead. And it turned into uh, they're doing loads of stuff while they're in these caves. And I can't even like, I don't even have time to kind of really uh, get into what each uh, animal was probably being used for because it just seems to be so many other things, which is exciting. And I really like that. And it's like my favorite part of archaeology wow. is kind of getting these realizations. Uh, but it is not, it's also not a great thing to have as a PhD student when you're told to uh, focus on one thing. <laughs> PhD of this podcast has been going strong for five years. We are more excited than ever about the world of podcasting as academics. We want to keep bringing you great content. And to do that, we need your help with the cost of production. That's right, Zai. Through Patreon, you will support our 2020 vision for PC Podcast. 
better features, new equipment, and you'll get exclusive access to original content like the bloopers reel for this ad, by the way, and our reading list and outtake. Propose an episode. Get a special shout out. You know how exciting this is all going to be? Help us take the podcast to the next level. Click on the Patreon link to find out the many ways that you can support us. And as always, even if you can't support us financially, you can always help out by following us on Facebook and Twitter under PhDMS Podcast. It helps a lot when you rate us and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, because when you just said that no one's looked at the animals in the site, I was like, I was like, how many even like number wise, maybe, there's surely dozens of different types there in and of itself, there were, right? Um, like, at the end of my count, and I will say, um, I'm the only person who specifically looked at them. Some people have uh, including my colleague Claire Rainsford, have like done like preliminary work on them, but no one's actually done uh, focus analysis. So that's been all me. Uh, yay! Uh, <laughs> there were uh, over eight thousand oh. bone fragments in total, and uh, I, I don't think I even uh, counted the amount of species because there were just between the fish, the, the birds. Uh, the mammalian species, I mean, it was, a, and, and like, it was also like a huge surprise. There are so many species that we didn't think were going to be there. Um, there were loads of seal uh, bones in there, which were really interesting. I remember finding some conger eel who was brought in there for some reason. Um, the thing that I really enjoyed the most is the uh, great auk, which is an extinct bird, uh, but we found loads of it in these caves, which is really interesting. Hmm. I remember we had a a huge tibia bone that I ended up IDing as crane. Uh, it was big enough that uh, my uh, colleagues thought it was a human bone until I looked at it and was like, no, that's a bird. That's a really big bird. <laughs> like it, it was like, this was such a difficult project. And even some of my supervisors were like, I don't even know what to tell you because it was just surprise after surprise of like realizing things. And I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that no one really looked at them. And, um, it's it's kind of a case of what we prioritize and i think that ties into why i'm really interested in moving past an anthropocentric um zooarchaeology because everyone was still thinking about you know the human bone that was the most important thing that's the thing we're gonna you know publish about and like basically everything that's already published about these caves are all about the human bone that no one stepped back and looked at the animal bone because it wasn't necessarily seen as as important, and I definitely understand why. I think even every archaeologist has that kind of hierarchical thinking of like, we want the shiniest thing first, and then like the human remains second, and then I don't know, maybe some pottery. <laughs> like no one really cares about the animal bone, so <laughs> I, I'm here to to care about the humble animal bone. I guess. Do you find yourself then looking at like um, sort of the critical animal studies work that happens in the humanities oh yeah no i love like i look at the critical uh animal studies i look at uh, a lot of post-humanist uh theory and things like that and it's not just me i will say that as well there's loads of people who have kind of branched off and started doing stuff like this there's a, a whole movement towards social zooarchaeology oh, cool. which is way more you know analyzing the animal on its own merits and kind of and branching out into seeing the way that animals have influenced human culture and activity. But it's it's such a fascinating like side thing. And it's only really just started. I mean, I think that our biggest um, publication on social zooarchaeology, which was by Narissa Russell, I think only came out like eight years ago. So it's still a very fledgling part of the field that I'm very, um, you know, 
excited about uh, that becoming more of a, a thing. Also because I'm really bored of doing the, the nuts and bolts, counting how many animals were there. It's very boring, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, like I know that ecology is really important, but I think it's really boring. I mean, I feel that similar ways about people who work on poetry scansion. Like, it's definitely important, like the rhythm of a poem and the different metrical feet, but I don't find it inherently interesting yeah. myself. Although I'm glad people do it. It's just not, not my jam. Yeah, I mean, I'll count the bones and figure out how many, like, cows were in this, like, pit. But it's not, like, my favorite part of zooarchaeology. I mean, most zooarchaeology, there's, um, uh, I forget his name. Uh, one, there's a one zooarchaeologist who famously referred to early zooarchaeology as just being laundry lists of bones. And sometimes it still tends to be that where <laughs> you're just reading report after report. Of, and of course, you know, it's something we need. It's obviously something that is important to zooarchaeology, but it's not necessarily the zooarchaeology I actually find exciting, uh, the statistical side. Also, I'm really bad at math, so uh, I try to avoid that as much as possible. I am. Yeah, East Asia yeah, is terrible at math. Going against stereotypes. I'm constantly breaking stereotypes <laughs> with my constant C's in math in high school. Um, I consider myself a real pioneer in that kind of stuff. <laughs> yes, breaking <laughs> stereotypes. If We just made representational st- uh, politics the be-all yep. and end-all of Asian American politics, which some people <laughs> tried to do. Be like, uh, yes, being bad at math, Asian men dating a, a women who are not Asian, things like that. Uh anyway no but that's absolutely fascinating so another question that i have also is like the the stakes of how of archaeology i can imagine in the uk um so one thing i've noticed as as someone who as as a trans ally who's very concerned about the state of a trans politics here um because of how transphobic Mm -hmm. everything is is like the way that the term indigenous is being weaponized Mm -hmm. um by by people here and so for, for people who are our listeners who are less aware, if you're, I'm sure it's kind of avoidable to know that transphobia is an issue in the UK because of JK Rowling. But one particular dimension of it has been that there's been critiques pointing out that like, like black and indigenous feminisms in particular have been so important for making, for being tied to thinking about like trans feminisms mm-hmm. as well. And that because of the critiques of black and indigenous feminists not making its way to places like the UK in the same way, it seems like feminism here has much been able to much more easily be an unassailable, implicitly white yeah. project. And the reaction then of the white feminists here have been like, but we're indigenous to the UK. Um, you're trying to use it in the exact same way that that indigenous being used with a capital I. And I can't help but imagine that those type of people see archaeological work in the UK as trying to bolster their sense of of their connection to that I, have yeah, you come across that at all or yeah, even like con- questions of about using the term or <laughs> that's, that's my reaction to it um it's yeah it's okay especially in england uh and, and you know in the uk in general uh, archaeology is so intrinsically tied to nationalism and this idea of like you know we are we are indigenous you know the white anglo-saxons and all the other garbage um it, it definitely tends to find its way. I mean, there's, I'm very anxious whenever I, I start engaging with a lot of uh, women in archaeology, because, especially in the UK, because there's definitely a very uncomfortable focus on uh, women as a very concrete 
um, category. And luckily there are mm. loads of really mm-hmm. good colleagues who are doing really good work in queering archeology span and looking more into like the history of concepts of uh, transgender uh, as a concept in the past. But yeah, it's, it, there is a very worrying thread that I, I, you know, obviously I can't say for sure that, oh, there's so many turfs in archeology, span but like, I'm very convinced that there probably is like a, a subset of uh, <laughs> turfs. I mean, like statistically there has to be because uh, we're, we are located on turf islands, but um, this is their turf so to speak and then like there's also like i've noticed especially as someone who's been pushing back against racism in archaeology that there tends to be way more of an emphasis on dealing with the sexism of archaeology and of course there is there's obviously i've dealt with so much sexism in archaeology but like the way some people approach it really rings alarm bells in my brain um, but again, luckily, there is like a, a generation of uh, archaeologists who are breaking down those barriers and just not having any of it, which makes me feel a bit more hopeful. Uh, now, if only we could all find jobs, that would be great. Yeah, well, I guess that's that almost must be like the sort of smugness of the old guard that feels threatened by you guys of like, aha, this disaster means that so many of these disruptors are changing the field in important ways, but we're threatened by like, may not be able to mm-hmm. last like that just sounds like the sad disgusting thing of like the, just about professional survival yeah. especially with archaeology which already academically yeah. really doesn't have like a robust job market you know a lot of these people want to stay in academia they don't necessarily want to go to commercial archaeology which i think is a very important and like incredible part of archaeology that i will never really do because i'm so bad at field work uh, but obviously there are people who look down on it, which is extremely silly. Um. <laughs> to close, I'm curious, since you've, you've written about archaeology for the public quite a bit, like, has there been a recent piece or will there be an upcoming piece that is based on your dissertation that, um, that you'd like to talk to us a bit about? And then I could link in the episode description. Uh, I don't really have anything coming out soon. <laughs> I've been too busy being um, really sad all the time. So... That is yeah i mean being sad all the time kind of just kills everything mentally i, I mean it's, yeah it's absolutely ruined because i had really grand ideas of like after i submit i'll be able to work on all these projects that i really wanted to commit time to and now that i'm at that point i'm like i just want to lay on the floor which is what i did uh, the other day as i told you just laid on the floor for a whole day i'm pro laying on Love the floor it. sometimes that's what you need the floor is very comforting it's yeah. very stable it's the only stable <laughs> thing in my life right now it's like I don't like want to just be gratuitously upbeat because I think that's also very false. But like, what is there something that'd be useful for you or something that you would enjoy talking about, perhaps? Um, yeah, I, I I do way more fun stuff on the side. Let me tell you, um, I, I occasionally, <laughs> although I'm trying to be better at regularly writing at my website, which is uh, animalarchaeology.com, which started started off as like a I'm gonna do serious posts about zoo archaeology and now it's just like here's a video game I'm playing let's talk about the archaeology in it which I find way more fun and I think gets people way more into archaeology than the drier stuff I, I originally planned to write about and it's something that we've also seen happen with my podcast that I uh, co-host with uh, my colleague Simona Falanga 
on the Archaeology Podcast Network. He uh, co-hosts a podcast called Archaeo Animals. It's been going on for two years now, actually, uh, but we only do monthly uh, episodes Ooh. because uh, Simona is a commercial archaeologist, which means her schedule is all over the place. Uh, and we're just both really tired all the time. So we, we, we commit to one episode a month, but we tend to try and make them like really fun episodes. Uh, we do... Uh, very zoo archaeological episodes as well as more fun pop culture episodes like we just finished one on based on the mass effect series uh the other week because we're also very big video game players gamers whatever you want to call it um <laughs> and i think it's just i don't know i like i like doing that because i i think zoo archaeology has become a slightly niche field in archaeology a lot of people don't even know it exists and I think this is a more fun way to get people into it. Because um, I'm also, as much as I love doing zooarchaeology and being an archaeologist, I also know that it, there's some really boring stuff written about it. So uh, hopefully these kind of projects I do uh, get people more involved and more interested in our work. Um, because otherwise I'll put myself to sleep by talking about the, the serious stuff. <laughs> I think I really enjoyed the one that you wrote about the cats domesticating themselves again. Um, and for what it's worth, I really enjoy your um, Animal Crossing posts. Thank you. That's because every day I do a little bit of Animal Crossing because if I miss a day, I'll die. I love Animal Crossing <laughs> so much. Okay. Um, well, maybe that's that's a good note to end on because I keep on thinking if like we go back into serious lockdown, like I really do have to just get a switch. Like before, it's just like the, the cost has been sort of daunting to me, but... Maybe that's yeah, what I'll do. And so light. hopefully I'll get to visit your lovely island. Yeah, get a switch light. That's what I have uh, because I have really bad eyesight and don't like wearing okay. my glasses. So I never actually play it on my TV. I always play it handheld. Uh, get a switch light, get Animal Crossing. It's a great game. Um, I'm not uh, being paid by Nintendo, although if Nintendo wants to reach out to me, would love to do something. Oh, that'd oh be so gosh. sweet. Like, honestly, I am so ready to sell out. I am so if anyone out there wants to like sponsor me i'm so ready to sell out you have no idea well on that <laughs> note i will be linking to all the ways you could reach out to dr alice fitzpatrick to hire her as an expert with very many broad fields of expertise and communications experience and so my fingers are crossed for what's ahead and i know that's really hard and it's it's sort of the thing where like on the one hand like i think this encouragement is needed but also like i know that it can also feel very empty sometimes yeah. um, well i always appreciate yeah i just really really hope that i was gonna say um i really appreciate it. you've always been so supportive for someone who really hasn't known me for that long and we've only really met that one time but we've kept in touch uh so <laughs> it means so much to hear that from you because you are someone i really look up to and you're so incredible and i know you were saying before that you don't think, find yourself remarkable but i think you're and I'm so happy and honored to be able to, you know, talk to you about this kind of stuff. Uh, and also complain to you. <laughs> if anyone wants to hire me so I can complain, I will. Well, thank you once again. Uh, listeners, of course, you can uh, please share, subscribe, rate, all that type of stuff. We have a Patreon. And also check out all of Alex's fantastic projects, including the podcast they're a part of. You'll learn many more fascinating things about archaeology, video games, and combinations of the two. <laughs> and I think I'll leave it off there.